This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Trolley. Thanks for all of your messages and uh, comments yesterday about the focus group. Frank Lunds was an absolute legend. We'll try and get him back on the podcast very soon. Coming up on today's episode, after all the G7 leaders promised uh, jabs galore, a billion doses, although technically we need 11 billion, uh, I've been finding out exactly how you get the jabs into the arms of the world's poorest. I speak to the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the International Rescue Committee and the head of the COVAX Global Initiative to uh, get the vaccines to the poorest parts of the world. So that's coming up as our big thing on the podcast. But first, today's columnist panel. Right, it's that time of the morning. We always speak to two of our favourite columnists. No Finkelvich this week. David Aronovich is still off having his spray tan. So we've got Daniel Finkelstein as usual. Hi, Danny. Hello, how are you? I'm very good, I'm very good. And Andy Sylvester, acting editor of City AM. Morning, Andy. Morning. Now, uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the uh, Boris Johnson and his announcement in the press conference. We can talk about the merits or otherwise of extending the lockdown, but he's caused quite a stink in Parliament. This was uh, Lindsay Hoyle uh, losing his, um, I was nearly swore then, uh, getting very cross in the House of Commons uh, last night. I find it totally unacceptable that once again, once again, that we see Downing Street running roughshod over members of Parliament. There we are. He got very, very cross. Danny, you're not only an esteemed Times columnist, but also a member of the House of Lords. Is it a problem if the Prime Minister announces big things at a Downing Street press conference and not in the House of Commons? First of all, I was a little bit disconcerted with your previous listener's suggestion that weddings, they ought to not have Jew at weddings, because if I didn't have Jews at my wedding, there wouldn't be anybody being there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist that. Um, so uh, normally speaking, I am very um, sympathetic with the speaker saying that statements have to be made to the commons before they're made in the media or in other forums i'm not sure he was right on this occasion and i wonder whether um he might want to reflect on it i i i can't be certain i'm correct about this uh go back and forth on it but 
I did think it was pretty useful to have Chris Whitty there immediately uh, giving an explanation to the public as the decision was announced with his charts with the uh with the graphs explaining what the risk was um and and i don't think it would have been possible to have the same in the commons that might be overdoing it because i suppose you know the prime minister might be able to do some graphs himself but i did see the argument for the press conference as he did it and i think that um uh, lindsay hall was asking for something more wasn't he also asking for the government to kind of go to the commons before it announced a decision uh to discuss what the decision should be i think that would have been very difficult as well so i wonder whether it really i really kind of measured up to the scale of the emergency and the rather odd nature of the decisions that have to be taken but you know as I say I'm not 100% sure I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about this Andy is it a problem if the Prime Minister's doing everything in the because we have seen although Andy um, uh, Danny's right we've you know it's good to have Chris Whitty there to to sort of give the scientific take on it but um, also when there are you know two or three press conference questions from journalists uh, we've seen the Prime Minister and uh, the Cabinet Minister uh, prove quite adept at just not answering them. Yeah, the illusion of transparency this year in which we're allowed to ask questions of government and they just ignore them entirely and then say that they're being entirely open about their decision-making has been one of the hallmarks of, of this pandemic. Look, I think Danny's right. I think in theory, you of course want to go to the Commons. We, of course, want parliamentary scrutiny. But in practice right now, one of the criticisms of government has been that they haven't been clear enough on the rules. They aren't explaining themselves. They aren't explaining why, when we've got a wildly successful vaccine rollout, we're still dealing with lockdown restrictions. And that is why you need Chris Whitty there, not just because you can imagine Boris trying to explain some of those graphs in the Commons as he sort of ruffles through his papers trying to find them. So I think in theory, Lindsay Hoyle is, is, so Lindsay Hoyle is, is correct. But in practice, in the middle of a global pandemic, you are going to have to kind of stretch those principles a little bit. I think there's a wider point, though about the level of parliamentary scrutiny of government decision making. Um, You know, we go back to even last summer, you had some on the Tory backbenches talking about ministers getting used to ruling by decree. And that's clearly still frustrating people on the backbenches. And quite clearly, that's where a lot of the the rebellion, so to speak, amongst Tory backbenches is coming from, is a frustration that they aren't being consulted in parliament, they aren't being consulted by number 10. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the coming weeks and months, especially as we get closer to July the 19th, when it's highly likely that cases will still be on the rise. Danny, the other thing, this is sort of the most high-profile um, uh, example of Lindsay Hoyle getting quite cross, but I mean, the last few weeks of PMQs, he's been having a dig at uh, Boris Johnson increasingly saying, you know, we shouldn't be bringing up what the Labour Party's policy is and that sort of thing. This is a classic sort of thing where the Tories were very keen to get rid of John Burko uh, and replace him with the altogether more amenable Lindsay Hoyle. And they've ended up uh, with someone who's equally cross with them and now isn't afraid to say so. Yeah, look, I'm sympathetic in in essence to Lindsay Hall, because if this government has, you know, one of its weaknesses is that it... um, it's impatient with institutions and institutional uh, restrictions on uh, what it wants to do. Uh, And um, it would like to not have to answer questions on it. All governments would like that, but I think it's quite a marked (laughs) tendency of of this government. And, and I, and, um, you know, we've said this before when we say, you know, Boris Johnson likes the rules to be for him. Well, I think that Lindsay Hall does have to be fairly insistent on that, that he has to be fairly insistent that uh, government comes to the House of Commons, presents his proposals and tells the truth when it does. And so um, it's not surprising to me that there is 
a degree of tension between the speaker and the government. Um, and uh, I just wasn't sure. And I'm generally sympathetic to the speaker in this case, in, the, in those cases. But I wasn't sure I was on this occasion. <laughs> And uh, on the on the sort of substance of what the prime minister actually announced, um, I mean, even you know, and I've been put very much more on the give the benefit, give them the benefit of the doubt. Of course, we need to be sensible. You know, lockdowns clearly work if you look at the, the stats and all of that. There's part of me that thinks, just look at the data as they showed yesterday. Almost all of the people who are most vulnerable to to uh, dying as a result of catching COVID have now had most of them have had two jabs. In fact. Um, uh, uh, and and there will all, there is this sort of creeping tendency, but there will always be an excuse. And at some point, Boris Johnson's got to bite the bullet, hasn't he, Andy, and just say, "Look, some people are going to catch this and die in the same way that some people uh, get cancer." And so, you know, but we still let smoking uh, carry on. Uh, some people are going to, you know, uh, get caught up in car accidents. We don't ban cars. Um, and at some point, the go- there's this real sort of concern that we seem to be aiming for zero deaths from COVID, and that's just not going to be possible. Yeah, well, that's exactly what Theresa May said in Collins, I think, at the back end of last week, that the government needed to be honest about that ambition, I suppose. Um, I think what you've hit on there, Matt, is the, the frustration that a lot of people have around or has appeared to be a moving of the goalposts throughout the pandemic in terms of what counts as success. You know, at the start, it was very much protect the NHS button curve you know, protect the vulnerable. Going through the vaccine program that started, started the rollout, it was about, you know, getting needles in the arms of those that most needed it. And now we seem to be counting over 50s as, you know, highly vulnerable and we need to speed that process up. Now, on the one hand, the data has changed. This Delta variant, Indian variant, whatever we're calling it, is, you know, in theory, more contagious, more dangerous um, than previous variants. So of course the data is changing. But this is a political judgment. And at some point, the government will have to make a political choice. You know, the scientists, SAGE, will always err on the side of caution. That is their role in this. Um, But the question for the cabinet is how long that can go on with all the negative externalities that come with these restrictions, be it economic, mental health, or of course, as we're starting to see, a huge backlog in the health service with almost every other condition. Danny? It did strike me, Matt, as pretty interesting that there was literally nobody who looked at the figures who then ended up making the argument that we shouldn't have the extra four weeks. That did strike me as very uh, interesting. So it is correct that almost everybody in the target groups has been uh, jabbed and that it is almost 100% effective. But in both cases, that almost covers actually about 20% of people. It's yeah. a bit like saying, you know, no, the public is overwhelmingly in favour of further restrictions, but, uh, but only, and only 25% of people are against it. That's a lot of people. And there are still quite a lot of people who are vulnerable to this. And I think another, effectively what this means, four weeks more delay, is another two weeks of jabbing people and two weeks then for it to become effective. And we'll be able to do it with some degree of assurance that hospitals will not be uh, overwhelmed with COVID cases. And that did seem, it struck me that anybody who actually looked at the data beyond the kind of hand wave of, uh, but we've all been vaccinated and actually said, well, that in fact means 80% of this group and 85% of that group, and it's 80 
85% effective. And when you take all those figures together, very quickly, 15% of this and 15% of that, you know, it all, it's, uh, it all adds up. And so I, I was in the end persuaded, not just by the figures themselves, but also by the sheer weight of everybody who studied those figures in any detail reaching pretty similar conclusions and it's it's striking that that hasn't really been gainsaid by anybody you know inside the government uh or really outside among respectable kind of uh opinion that's been in the mainstream of thinking on it but let's move from talking about lockdown to talking about people talking about lockdown my new obsession is watching gb news uh, I was watching. <laughs> I couldn't take my eyes off it on Sunday night. You and I were texting each other about it, uh, Danny. Um, and you know, we welcome uh, all competition. And it's good. It's, you know, let's be honest. It's good to see journalists being hired anywhere, and they have done a phenomenal job in terms of hiring. You know, large numbers of uh, of journalists and reporters and presenters and so on. What What are your? I mean, what? Before I get on to what my views are, uh, what was your first take on it, Danny? Well, um, I. I... I was surprised, given the professionalism of a few of the top people in it, Andrew Neil, uh, Colin Brazier, Alistair Stewart, at how amateurish the set looked it, and some of the technology. Now, the technology uh, mistakes, that certainly wasn't deliberate. Uh, I wondered about the set. You know, what is occurring to me is that um, well, there are two possibilities. One is somebody really bad designed it. They're totally rubbish. Um, uh, that is always a possibility, and I think the more likely of the two possibilities. The other is it's just aiming at a different demographic, and actually uh, the, the rubbishness is deliberate. Now, I always laugh at that. People used to say Gordon Brown was rubbish on purpose at all of his press re- you know, and it turned out it was just rubbish at them. Uh, and um, so I suspect that's, so I, I'm, I am surprised. I think the truth about GB News is there are some really good people on it um, with a kind of very strong proposition. Uh, but some of the uh, programmes, I'm afraid, I didn't think were very good. And some of the presenters are much better than others, let's put it that way. Well the, thing that, well, the thing that struck me is they've quite quickly discovered, you know, there was um, the sort of manifesto as laid out by Andrew Neil. We're going to do news differently. We're going to hear from the voices you don't get to hear from. And, they're, you know, they kick off talking about lockdown, taking the knee in Harry and Meghan, which is someone pointed well, out, out, out to me on Twitter. If they were literally support, you know, the silent majority on these issues, they'd be supporting lockdown, supporting taking yeah. the knee. And they'd be about 50-50 on Harry and Meghan. The really weird one was them continually saying, we're not going to tell you what to think, unlike other channels. The implication being that the BBC tells them what to think. Well, I mean, the whole proposition of GB News is to tell you what to think, right? I mean, you know, for good or bad. Uh, Dan Wooten, the whole evening, you know, one thing about lockdown, telling you what to think after another. Um, and uh, by the way, not the view that his audience thinks, because his audience, uh, you know, the older, they're, they're overwhelmingly for the lockdown, which he is against. So, uh, you know, it, it was just a bit slightly jarring, it's the intellectual proposition. Um, but nevertheless, they, you know, I think it'll have some, some people culturally, uh, this isn't certainly not me, doesn't like the BBC, doesn't think it's for them. Uh, and maybe they'll uh, find this uh, valuable and enjoyable. So it might succeed. The thing that shut me, Andy, was the, 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 the bold new voices that we haven't heard from before were um, Alison Pearson, and Ni- Nigel Farage and John Sumption. Uh, um, and quite quickly, actually, quite a lot of the people appearing on it, exactly the people you hear on Times Radio, Kate Nichols from UK Hospitality or... Uh, you, you know, Bob Kerslake was on this morning, former head of the civil service. It, it turns out if you're going to try to do the news, you do end up speaking to most of the other people. 
Yeah, which is, you know, maybe that's the problem about the wider point. I think um, the point on the set is, is a very real one. You know, I think for all of the talk about uh, at the start of it, you know, the, the GB News is going to be against identity politics. Fundamentally, watching GB News, according to Twitter and Facebook and various other things, has almost become a marker of identity. Establishment that you are no longer in that space. And that, I thought, was was quite interesting. Look, it, I'm, as you said at the top, no one begrudges journalists um, being hired. More journalism is a good thing. Um, you know, what will be interesting, and we do have safeguards on this, right, around Ofcom rules, which means the broadcasters have to be in a very different place from newspapers. Certainly, the you know, the columns that I used to write in the Sun says were probably not going to fly if I read them out on, on a public broadcaster or even a private broadcaster. But, you know, <laughs> Where I have sympathy for, for what GB News is trying to do is, and you see it this morning already, that an advertiser, Copperberg, has pulled out of has basically blacklisted GB News as a as a place to for their for their adverts. And they've said uh, the line is Copperberg is a drink for everyone, but apparently not if you're one of the half a million people who watch GB News on Sunday night. And I just think that maybe if GB News can challenge some of that and just accept that these people's you know, broadly legitimate views. Um, you know, are allowed to drink cider and that we do have a responsibility around free speech and free media. And we probably should all, even those of us who look at the set and think it's a bit ropey or sometimes wonder if these people should be, certain individuals should be opining on, on deep science and, and, and pretty complex health policy decisions. You know, it is not a bad thing to increase those voices and we should probably just check ourselves before we, um, before, before we sort of predict it's... it's imminent demise yeah 100% I mean the only thing that should stop anyone advertising on it is deciding there aren't enough people watching it or you know the wrong you know people who don't want to buy their products this idea of everyone yeah we must have freedom of speech as long uh, but only amongst people who agree with me uh is a is a general problem um the spirit of which everyone's got their own view someone's texting in Matt Trolley's program used to be really good it's becoming very smug and knowing (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the knowing bit's fair Bring back David Ivanovich. That's what I say. Uh, Danny Finkelstein, Andy Sylvester, thanks so much for joining us and talk, uh, talking through uh, Lindsay Hoyle lockdowns and GB News. Um, uh, so a few of you got in touch. GB News, not bad at all. They need to fix the technical issues and get some better lights, though. Uh, it must be uh, doing something right as a Twitterati meltdown trying to get its advertising boycott. That says Nick. There's a point um, we were just making and one I have some agreement with. Someone else says, uh, GB News is the set technology of early crossroads and anything missing from the presenter presenting is smoke-filled room cravats and looking at the camera for every ad- advert and saying groovy, uh, says Chris in Wales. I think he's slightly confusing GB News with um, the fast show. Anyway, that's enough of them. Um, I will go back to my addiction to watching it uh, later on. Um, uh, my favourite... Uh, well, two things so far has been Alan Sugar uh, <laughs> responding to Dan Whitting after he'd ever taken the knee and replying, uh, what a stupid effing question. And uh, last night, Roger Daltrey going on and saying um, he didn't want to talk about politics <laughs> before being asked what he thought about lockdown. Anyway, uh, you don't need to worry about that because we're going to stick with Times Radio. Coming up in our big thing at 11 o'clock, how do you get vaccines into the arms of the world's poorest? Up next, the latest employment news are good. It's good again. Some good news. Uh, so we'll crunch the numbers next here on Times Radio. 
Stories of our times on Times Radio, powered by Range Rover. One agenda-setting story told in depth by experts. I'm Manveen Rana. I'm David Aronovich. Go beyond the headlines with original quality journalism and exclusive interviews. What happens in the next year may define this country for the next 40 years. Leading the field in powerful reporting. Stories of our times on Times Radio. Saturday and Sunday nights from 8 with Range Rover. Leading the way. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app, and on your smart speaker, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Now, there's been some new uh, figures out from uh, this morning from the Office of National Statistics on the state of the jobs market. Britain saw a record surge in the number of workers on payrolls last month. There's hospitality and entertainment firms hired, ready for indoor reopening. Well, Paul Dales is the chief UK economist at Capital economics. He's been crunching the numbers for us. Morning, Paul. Good morning. So let's focus on the good news, first of all. Uh, the jobs market has proved to be remarkably resilient, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it has. And a lot of that is down to the government's furlough scheme. Um, so without that furlough scheme, I'm pretty sure that the unemployment rate would have shot up to something like the 8.5% peak we saw after the GFC. Um, but this time it's really risen only from 4% to a high of 5.1%. And it's since come back down to just 4.7% on the latest data released this morning. And is this the theory, because obviously um, uh, Richard Sunak's been facing calls uh, to extend, I mean, the, technically furlough lasts until uh, September, but firms have to start paying some more from July. And obviously if you're in a nightclub, it means you've got to start paying it out of no money because you still can't uh, open. Is there a sense, though, that the furlough scheme hopefully, uh, will have tidied so many people over, will have kept them in jobs that then uh, still exist, or at least kept them very close to the jobs market so they found other jobs. And we won't end up with a huge... It might have cost the chance of a huge amount of money, but actually if everyone had ended up on out-of-work benefits, that would have cost the chance of a lot of money too. Yeah, that's exactly the point of the furlough scheme. So um, when economic activity fell very sharply during the lockdowns, um, the furlough scheme supported employment. It, it's acted as a bridge over that um, that big drop in economic activity. Now, last year, when the furlough scheme was due to expire in October, um, people were quite right to think there'd be a lot of people um, who would lose their jobs um, if it did expire at that point because economic activity was still very weak. Um, but when it's due to expire at this October or the end of this September, uh, the level of economic activity or GDP has risen much more. Um, so that means the economy can support a higher level of employment. So my sense is that most of those people are still on furlough and there's about 3.4 million of them, million of them at the end of April um, will probably um, go back to their jobs. Um, or if they're unlucky enough to lose their jobs, they'll probably find another one fairly easily. Uh, is there any particular sector? I mentioned that hospitality and entertainment are doing quite well uh, in the, you know, the, the number of people going back onto payrolls uh, ahead of the indoor reopening. Are there any sectors which are doing less well? Um, well, I'd actually say it's it's uh, hospitality and um, <laughs> uh, arts and entertainment. I mean, they have seen the biggest increase um, in May, but that increase has come from a very, very low level. Um, that that sector has been hit the hardest by uh, the lockdowns, and that means employment has fallen most in that sector as well. Um, but that does mean that as it reopens, 
um, we are going to probably um, see that sector enjoy some fairly large increases in employment to get back to a more normal level. And uh, longer term, I mean, you, you described this huge success of the furlough scheme, I mean, which is quite a departure for, you know, particularly for a conservative chancellor to spend quite so much money uh, literally paying people's wages to keep them off the sort of the, the welfare books. In, in the longer term, obviously, that money needs to be paid back. Should we, just because everything's sort of looking rosy now or being well, we unlock in uh, July, you know, we enjoy the summer, but are there tough economic times ahead? I don't think so, no. Um, and I'm not sure it's quite right to think about it, that money going to have to be paid back in a sense. Um, so what what it's done is it's actually kept the links between employers and employees. Now, this means that over the next four or five years or so, there's going to be lower unemployment um, than otherwise. There's going to be uh, less people dropping out of the labour force because they become um, unmotivated or unable to do a job. Um, so what that means is in a couple of years time, the level of overall economic activity will be higher than it would have been without the furlough. And when you've got higher economic activity, that means more people, households and businesses are paying more taxes. So actually, um, if you just manage to get the economy um, to a bigger size, then you generate more tax revenue. And that's what will pay for this pandemic rather than us having to pay um, much higher taxes per person on um, you know, per rate, sorry, on income tax or anything like that. You read Dami's column in The Times online at five o'clock on a Tuesday. So if you're listening to the podcast after five, then you can go online right now and read it. You just need a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how exactly do you get vaccines to the world's poorest? This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. You know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Yeah, so at the weekend, the G7 pledged a billion COVID doses. But the world needs something like 11 billion shots. This was Boris Johnson and US President Joe Biden at the weekend. A week ago, I asked my fellow leaders to help in uh, preparing and providing the doses we need to vaccinate the whole world by the end of 2022. I'm very pleased to announce that this weekend, leaders have pledged over 1 billion doses, either directly or through funding to COVAX, that includes 100 million from the UK to the world's poorest countries, which is another another big step towards vaccinating the world. So we're going to have a billion doses of vaccine. And in our case, uh, the, uh, that includes sharing more than uh, the, not just the 1 billion doses overall, but we're going to provide for 200 million of those doses uh, by the end of the year, another 300 million by the first half of next year. And so it was greeted with some enthusiasm. And uh, we've agreed to work together so that the world is better prepared to detect and deal with future pandemics, because there will be future pandemics. That was Joe Biden speaking at the G7 at the weekend. We're falling 10 billion shots short of the 11 billion uh, needed, prompted global health charities to call the G7 summit a missed opportunity. 
to announce a bold world vaccination programme. The summit also provoked stern words from former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who said it was an unforgivable moral failure not to have come up with a plan to vaccinate the world. Well, in lieu of the world leaders do it themselves, we've assembled a panel of experts in the field of global health and vaccinations who are going to tell us what needs uh, to happen to get jabs in the arms of the world. Let's speak first of all to Jane Holton, Chair of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and Co-Chair of the COVAX Initiative, which is aiming to provide equal access to jabs across the world. Hi, Jane. Morning. Uh, explain to us, first of all, when we say uh, the world needs 11 billion uh, vaccines, where's that figure come from? Which, which, which of the countries we're talking about? So that's a figure that I think um, the head of the WHO he's got one name like Madonna, Tedros, uh, has put into the public arena. And he rightly points out that if we want to vaccinate 70% of the world's adult population, we need probably about 11 billion doses. If you think about it this way, there are 8 billion people in the world. Let's assume 6 billion of those people uh, are adults and they're the group we want to vaccinate and they need somewhere between mostly two shots, occasionally Johnson & Johnson one shot. So I think that's where you get your 11 billion. It's a very big number. And it's a number that the, the pledges at the G7 fell well short of. Well, that's true. But let's, I mean, I think it would be sensible to acknowledge that we've had the biggest ever commitment uh, to the delivery of vaccines that we've seen, and that should be acknowledged. And I think we should express our appreciation for that. It doesn't mean, however, that that is enough. And I would like to point to the fact that uh, we do have significant pledges of money in addition to the vaccine pledges that were made uh, at Carvis Bay. And that's a very good thing. But the whole world is scrambling to produce more vaccines than we have ever produced uh, uh, not in just one year, but in fact, over probably four or five years for this kind of purpose. So it's a very big job. We do have enough money. Um, and now with these pledges, probably to get uh, a reasonable proportion uh, of all people in the world vaccinated, if we can actually get them manufactured, and then if we can get them shipped and into people's arms. And I think a number of the people on this panel will tell you that is not an easy thing. So uh, we're at the start of this race, in truth, and we're certainly not halfway around the back straight. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to the, the, the practicalities at the moment. Just to explain for people who don't know, uh, they might have heard COVAX referred to uh, a lot mm. over the last few days. What, what is the role that, that COVAX is trying, is trying to perform? Mm. So COVAX um, is an initiative of uh, basically three principal organisations, but I acknowledge that UNICEF are on here today, they're our delivery partner. But this was conceived off by CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, GAVI, the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunisation, and of course the WHO. And a number of us had been through H1N1 and had seen the really paltry effort to deliver vaccines to the rest of the world. And we said, this is a very serious health pandemic we're facing. Not only do we have to do the scientific work to produce vaccines, but then we actually have to do something to make sure we have enough of them and that then we can deliver them. So um, this is an unheard of initiative where we bring together these organizations, as I said, working with UNICEF, who are our delivery partner, to actually mobilize the resources to do everything right from uh, money into research 
uh, money into the early parts of the trial process, money into then early bits of the delivery and the supply chain, and now procurement, which includes donation of vaccines, and then the shipping, and then ultimately we hope the delivery of those vaccines to people right around the world. But obviously, with an emphasis on equity, because while any country still got this problem, we've all got it. And we know that countries with lots of money have been very early to actually buy vaccines, to actually sop up all of the stuff in the supply chain, the cost of those people in low and middle income countries. So COVAX has been explicitly designed to actually counter those efforts. Okay, let's bring in, as you mentioned there, uh, Lily uh, Kapani, from, uh, who is UNICEF's vaccine lead. Hi, Lily. Welcome to Times Radio. Hello. Um, so explain um, the sort of countries that you're keeping an eye on, the focus on. Which are the countries that you're um, concerned about? But particularly, I was looking at some of the vaccine rates. I mean, there's a good, I mean, there's definitely to double figures the number of countries where fewer than 1% of people have been uh, fully vaccinated. And you look through the list of countries, Chad, Congo, Burkina Faso, South Sudan, Cameroon, Syria... Uh, Central African Republic, Yemen, Nigeria. These are countries with huge problems already, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. And one of the reasons UNICEF's become a delivery partner for COVAX is that it, pre-pandemic times, one of our big jobs is to is to deliver vaccines for children all over the world, in, including in all the places you've just said. So that experience of trying to buy and ship and distribute vaccines um, is is what we do anyway, and now we're trying to do it with COVAX for all of the adults and vulnerable groups in those countries, especially healthcare workers. And we're really worried about countries that have got very low levels of vaccine access, like the lowest income countries you've just mentioned. Um, because first of all, if we don't get those vaccines delivered to healthcare workers there, then if they become the next hotspot and they are at risk of becoming an another hotspot, then not only is that a, a terrible tragedy for people they're affected, but it could cause a knock-on effect to the whole of their healthcare systems, which affects children and families in the wider community. And of course, as we also know, that gives an opportunity for the virus to continue to mutate and give rise to new variants, putting the whole recovery around the world at risk. So we're worried about countries for their own sakes, but also because the only way out of a global pandemic is to make sure that we're simultaneously creating equal access to vaccination for all countries in the interests of all of us. And we, you, can't, you can't do one country at a time to end a global pandemic. So it's, it's in our kind of collective best interests. Um, and I, I think you saw the G7 begin to recognise that this weekend, although still not quite going as far as we would like them to do. Just explain the, the sort of the process of how this works, because, of course, um, you know, we've been kind of be lucky in this country. We've got a fully functioning national health service, which is sort of swung into action and, you know, knows everyone's details. You get a text message, you go to the uh, place and you get your, your jab. Some of those countries we're talking about barely have functioning governments at all. Some of them are, are sort of war-torn uh, countries too. So explain the process. Say Britain hands over, what was a 100 million doses uh, they talked about, to, uh, to UNICEF, to COVAX, to the vaccination effort. Describe the journey of who... Who is it who takes the uh, the jabs to, well, I don't know whether it might be uh, Chad or Papua New Guinea or whatever, and how do you then make sure they get to the right places and get into people's arms? Because certainly with some of these uh, uh, vaccines, you know, they need to be kept at the right temperature, they need to be delivered in the right circumstances. Who is it that's doing that? Talk, talk me through the journey of a, of a vaccine dose. 
Yeah, and it's important to say that the, the really long-term sustainable way of doing this is that COVAX is set up as a kind of pooled mechanism. So we're pooling the buying power of the world to get vaccines at a good price for everyone. And and we don't really want to be relying on dose donations because this is not a charity. This is an international effort to make sure everyone gets vaccines. So COVAX needs money to buy vaccines. And it does have money, but it takes a long time to turn a, a contract with a manufacturer into a vaccine in the arm of healthcare worker. And in the next three months, because of the supply chain challenges that everyone is experiencing, especially the lower income countries that haven't been able to kind of get to the front of the queue We've got this big gap in our supplies in the next three months. That's why we've been asking for dose donations. It's just important to be clear that this we're not expecting to, to be a sort, you know, a charity pot for donations for the next few years. What we need is a sustainable supply. Um, but what it takes is to negotiate with those manufacturers the best value we possibly can and then arrange with airlines to 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 ship those vaccines to those countries but the and then there's another challenge which is getting vaccines off the tarmac and into the arms of of particularly healthcare workers and as you said that can involve in war zones it can be in remote pacific islands it can be in 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 informal slums and it, it's a big logistical challenge that requires its own dedicated funding and support and it it's often an agency like unicef often working with who the world health organization and other implementing partners on the ground supporting governments in lower income countries low and middle income countries to make that happen through a network of partners who are um, able to reach all of those hardest to reach communities and we are seeing those challenges facing us soon as well this is an incredibly complex, probably an unprecedented logistical challenge that the world's facing. So it's not just about, it's the, the story is not over once you've bought vaccines, you have to buy them, ship them, and then properly resource countries to deliver them. And if we don't do that last mile, we won't be protecting healthcare workers. And it's important to say vaccines have quite a short shelf life. So this has to happen in, in, a, in a rapid and coordinated way, which COVAX is set up to do as long as it's well supplied and, and well funded. Lily, you, you, you mentioned that you didn't want this to be a sort of charity case. And I, maybe it's a question for Jane, too. But uh, almost simultaneously, Tom's message in saying, uh, I just don't understand why there aren't collection boxes at every vaccination centre. I would gladly chuck in the price of a shot, as many others would. Uh, Anne says, please ask, is there a place for private charitable giving for overseas vaccinations? Is there a sort of... Uh, mechanism for people in the UK who do want to give something to, you know, s spread the love, spread the, the, the vaccines. Is is that something that, that's sort of up and running at the moment? I don't know, Jane or, or Lily, if you want to come in on that. There, there are actually, I mean, sorry, I'll go to Jane in a moment. So both the World Health Organization has a, has a campaign to raise money called Get One, Give One, and UNICEF in the UK um, has the vaccine aid campaign as well. So um, depends where you live and where you are in the world listening to this. If you're in the UK, you can give to UNICEF UK, which is specifically um, going to help with that delivery last mile funding. Um, so there is we are encouraging anyone who's been lucky enough to get vaccinated to try and help someone in another part of the world be vaccinated, too. But it is important to emphasize that, you know, we are talking about an unprecedented scale and, and it, it it will take the richest governments in the world um, mm. making very long term sustainable commitments at this. It can't possibly be left to charity to try and solve this problem. It's in our global best interest to do it properly together as an international community. Lily, thank you for that from UNICEF. Jane, do you, do you want to just come in on that, on this idea of people who 
you know, I've I've had my free vaccine, if you like. Um, you know, how how people can chip in. Yes, absolutely. And there's a number of ways people can chip in. And I think Lily's said uh, in every country, I think if you found um, the relevant UNICEF uh, webpage, you'll find a spot. Similarly, if you're interested in donating to research on vaccines to actually do that work to make sure that we keep, for example, up with the variants, um, CEPI, if you look at our webpage, you can do the same. And the WHO has got its, um, you know, give one, get one uh, approach. So if you are interested in making a contribution, you can not only make one, but you can make one targeted to the bit of the supply chain that you're particularly interested in. But uh, UNICEF, and certainly in Australia where I am, uh, UNICEF, exactly the same, you can make a donation and it will go to where you want it to. Fantastic. It's really useful stuff. And hopefully um, people listening to this and want to help out will be able to do that. And I'll, I'll tweet some of the links to those uh, as well if people want to do that. Jane Holton, uh, Chair of the Coalition for Ep- Epidemic Preparedness Innovations co-chair of COVAX. Uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, from Australia. We also heard from uh, Lily Kapani, UNICEF's vaccine lead, who taught us through the uh, practicalities of, of getting vaccines to where they need to be. Up next, we're going to go to Africa and India to find out the picture on the ground there. Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Who has Joe Biden described as a killer but also bright and tough? That'll be the Russian President Vladimir Putin, of course, Stig. Of course it was. The two leaders are due to meet at the end of Biden's first overseas trip since taking office. What will he say to his face and what can they agree on? We'll explore that with people in the US and Russia. We'll also celebrate the first woman to go into space. And Times Radio's Hugo Rifkind and Emily Carver from the IEA discuss the morning's news. Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. On digital radio, on the web and via the Times Radio app. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, good morning. Nice to have you with us. We're looking at how exactly after uh, a billion doses of uh, vaccine, uh, COVID vaccines were pledged by the G7 at the weekend. We're looking at exactly how you go about getting those into the arms of the world's poorest. Well, let's find out what's happening on the ground now. We'll speak to Achal uh, Parabhala, is a writer and campaigner in India who advocates for equal access to medicines. Achal, are you there? Yes, I am. Ah, fantastic. Uh, describe what is the picture. And we've also heard an awful lot about uh, um, the, the, the problems of the spike in the number of cases in India and the impact on the, the health system in terms of hospitals and that sort of thing. What is happening with the uh, vaccine programme in India? Well, we have an acute vaccine shortage. And may I just say, in response to uh, what my colleagues at CEPI and UNICEF said about the work of the COVAX facility, uh, the COVAX facility promised the world 2 billion vaccine doses by the end of 2021. And here we are now six months into this year, and they've distributed exactly 81 million vaccine doses to about uh, a third of the world's population, to 91 poor countries other than India. So we're in a vaccine shortage and in a crisis, but hardly in as much of a crisis as the other companies who believed uh, in what the COVAX facility could do for them, like Nigeria or Ghana, where uh, there is less than enough to vaccinate 1% of these populations, if they're lucky at all. Because many poor countries on that list of 91 poor countries who were... uh, deemed eligible for philanthropy, uh, unfortunately have not received any vaccines at all. And so I think the time for charity and for uh, commiseration and empty promises about vaccinating the world should end. Uh, What we need is for vaccine manufacturers to share the monopolies that they have on patents, on technology, 
um, on the vaccines that have earned them billions of dollars, which they could share with other manufacturers who could produce them around the world and ease the shortage, but uh, are not doing. Unfortunately, uh, the G7 helped in that effort by not doing anything significantly to increase the manufacturing of vaccines worldwide either. And I suppose the problem is that you've had this sort of dual thing in uh, in India with the the health service being hugely overwhelmed, and unlike in the UK, the vaccine program not being able to keep pace with that. The health system was definitely overwhelmed, Matt, and so that's that's absolutely a case in point. And this is true of many other developing countries. Many other poor countries face the same constraints. They're just not equipped to deal with even basic medical needs, such as providing oxygen or a basic course of steroids, which is what most people re- required in order to prevent the symptomatic effects of COVID. The problem is that we know that, and we're not going to be able to fix all developing country health systems in a month or two. But what we can fix in six months, if organizations like COVAX understand their limitations and help activists such as myself and others who are asking for vaccine monopolies in intellectual property and technology to be waived for other people to make good, efficient Western vaccines, then in about four or five months, we could have a solution that actually works, which is providing vaccinations across the world, which would prevent health systems from being overburdened, which would reduce the virulence of resurgences, not just in developing countries, by the way, but it would prevent us from sending them back to you, for instance, in the United Kingdom, right, where you're contemplating the uh, continuation of a lockdown because of us, actually, because of the mutant uh, virus from India which unfortunately was caused in part by the UK not doing anything to help increase the manufacturing of vaccines in India and other parts of the world. It's that whole thing about, you know, we're not, um, uh, we're not all, we're not safe until everyone's safe. You know, we, we, everyone needs to be uh, vaccinated. I think we have now got Mary Stephen, public health expert from the World Health Organization in Africa. Uh, morning, Mary. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining us. Where are you this morning? I'm in Congo Brazzaville at the WHO Regional Office for Africa. Uh, what is the picture in terms of uh, vaccine rollout in Africa? In Africa, as of today, we have received uh, 53 million doses of vaccine and so far 35.8 million doses uh, have been administered and uh, about 2% of the Africa's population have received at least one dose of uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so with the targets for uh, reaching out to 10% in, in uh, September 2021, uh, WHO Regional Office for Africa estimates that uh, with the current supply and rollout of vaccine, only about seven countries uh, on the continent would, um, will get to that target. So about 90% uh, will miss out of the target of 10%. So we, we have seen some, um, a, a good progress with these seven countries and some additional countries coming up if we have additional doses. But uh, currently we need 225 million doses for the 10% September 2021 and about 780 million doses to vaccinate 30% by December 2021. And um, how, because obviously some countries we, we were talking about, you know, war-torn countries without a strong health system. Is there a, a willingness for people to get, do people want to get the vaccines? Is there any problem with vaccine hesitancy? 
Yes, uh, we have seen improvement in uh, uh, uptake of the vaccine. At, at the initial stages, we, we had some issues with uh, hesitancy. Uh, but when we started seeing increase in number of cases, especially in, in most of these big countries, uh, people started coming up to uh, get vaccinated. So the issue of hesitancy is still there, but definitely we have moved away from where we were earlier this year. Well, that's good news. That does seem to be the case you know, around the world. Once the vaccines start being rolled out, even people who said they weren't going to get one suddenly think, actually, I will get one because everyone else seems to be getting it. Uh, finally, let's speak to Daphne J. Singh, the head of policy of the International Rescue Committee. Hi, Daphne. Hi, thanks very much for having me. No, uh, it's good to have you here. And just to sort of round things off a bit in, in terms of what uh, organisations, charities like the International Rescue Committee uh, need to see in practical terms in the, the coming weeks and months, because as we were just discussing there, so it's one thing we're talking about, you know, can you go to a pop concert in a, a few weeks' time because uh, everyone will be fully jabbed, and yet we're talking about rolling out vaccines to some of the poorest parts of the world at the end of the year and into next year. So what, what, what do organisations like yours really want to see in the, in the sort of urgent in the next few weeks? Well, thank you so much. Yeah, and just building on the comments already made by uh, my colleagues, I think really want to see uh, the capacity to develop and uh, manufacture vaccines being rolled out and the intellectual property being waived, um, as Achal said. Um, and I think we're deeply concerned that, as uh, Lily said, it's not only vaccines uh, that will solve the problem, it's the critical delivery to some of the hardest to reach places in the world. The International Rescue Committee work in conflict zones um, with populations who are already deeply marginalized as refugees and reaching them and delivering and supporting health workers to reach them is something that urgently needs to be supported. Um, while we welcome the action taken at the G7, we believe that was severely undermined by the UK G7 presidency and the cuts to the UK aid budget that we've seen and we've already seen that deeply affecting some of the health services that the IRC deliver including in contexts like Sierra Leone that really face the threat continue to face the threat of Ebola and so likewise we want to see that support for the preventative measures so cuts to UK aid um, in refugee camps uh, in Bangladesh, where the, the Rohingya refugees uh, cuts to water and sanitation in those camps is really affecting the spread of the virus. So that those steps have really undermined the leadership uh, role that they played in the G7. So what we'd also like to see is a reversal of those cuts. Uh, and just finally, the thing that strikes me, um, it's been fascinating having this conversation, but there's an awful lot of acronyms here. There's COVAX, there's WHO, SEPSI, GAVI, UNICEF, IRC, all sort of trying to do the same thing. I suspect, you know, working together in, in some cases and working alongside and uh, in others. Um, does this really need a sort of a single person, uh, a global big beast, if you like, maybe a former president or prime minister, sort of get a handle on this and to really sort of bang the drum and make this happen so that you don't have organisations sort of pitted against you. Even, even the question of if someone wants to give some money uh, to help the, the vaccine rollout, uh, even then we ended up with about half a dozen uh, email addresses. Does there need to be a sort of single world figure uh, who is the one who's making all of this happen? Well, thanks for that question. I mean, what we want to see is leadership um, around uh, the response to this current pandemic, but we also need to think about 
future pandemics and preparedness for future pandemics. So the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness has recommended a Global Health Threats Council with exactly that question in mind, the political leadership that's required to commit to preventing future pandemics. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.